Romans. Let's get into Romans. We've been studying Romans, and uh, Paul's been showing us uh, to great length in these first uh, two chapters. I think if we had to sum it up, we'd be, he's been really been showing us what sinners we are, really. I mean, how, how much we need a Savior, and he's really, he's going to these great lengths, and you might even think, you know, Rob, I'm tired of hearing about this. Here we are in chapter 3. I hope the news gets better. Sorry, it doesn't. Not till next week. But here this week, we're, again, we're going to see as Paul, he's just beating this point home because it is so, so important because he wants to bring every person, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what your background is, to a place where you stand before God and say, I am a sinner. I need a savior. And right now, he, in, in, in last week, he's been working on the Jewish people because they, they felt as though they were something special because after all, they were God's chosen people. God had given them the law. God had given them so much stuff. And he, he, they just felt that they were something special. And, he, and he's kind of whittled it down. And he's basically told them, listen, you're, it doesn't matter if you've been given the law. What matters is if you keep the law. If you're, if you're keeping the law, and, and we're not talking about salvation through grace yet. We're still talking about, you know, standing before God based on the way that you're living your life, based on your own merits. We're not talking about the blood of Christ yet. We haven't got there. We won't get there until a little bit later on in chapter 3. So just by way of review, in chapter 1 at the end, Paul addressed the morally unrighteous. He addressed the heathen, those people who have turned away from God. He laid it out there for them. They've turned away, and, and God's turned them over to various things. And then in Chapter 2, he addresses the morally superior person as well as the Jewish person who would think that they were something special because they came from the line of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they had the law, because God had administered that to them, and they, they thought that, well, I'm Jewish, of course I'm saved, kind of like American, right? I'm American, of course I'm a Christian. Not so much anymore, but there's a time in our country where if you were an American, you were a Christian. That's just the way that it went. You went to church on Sunday, and that's who you were, and, and there's this kind of affiliation that you had. That's who I am. It's what I do. But in chapter 3, as we pick it up, he's going to continue speaking to the Jewish people. And it'll, you can also take the Jewish people because, and you can apply that to sort of the religious people of our day. Sort of the people who are self-righteous. You know, he, he's speaking in the scriptures to the, relig to the Jewish person, but there were no self-righteous Christians back then because Christianity was just being formed. But yet the things that he's saying to them will certainly apply to somebody like that. You see, the Jewish person back in Paul's day, the ones that had come to Christ, would look to their ancestors, even the ones that hadn't come to Christ. They'd look to their ancestors, they'd look to their heritage and say, of, of course I'm saved, I'm Jewish, of course I'm okay with God, I'm Jewish. Just like the religious person of today might look to their own set of laws they've put up for themselves. They, they justify themselves before God because they attend a church or because they're a member of this church or a member of that church or their, their, their families have a relationship with God or my mom's a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. I was raised in a Christian family, therefore I'm in a Christian. That's not the way that it works for the young people. But here today, it doesn't matter what your mom and dad believe, it matters what you believe. It matters, have you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ? Because you can be raised in a Christian home and you can follow Christ all the way through, you know, all the way up to high school, but at what point do you decide, today is the day that I'm going to give my life to Christ and follow? Just because you're raised in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't work that way. You have to make the decision, I am going to follow Christ. I am going to read his word. I am going to take those principles and those things that I learned and I am going to put them in my life and I'm going to live them out in school at home, among my friends. It's not something that just happens because you were raised that way. So here in chapter 3, Paul turns and he's looking at the Jewish person. He's anticipating, you could even say it's the skeptical person. 
he's anticipating some skeptical questions. Because you can imagine if you were a Jewish person that in, that in Paul's day, and Paul's brought about this whole new way of salvation, this whole new way of being right with God through Jesus Christ, you, and, and he's basically dismissing all the heritage, all the, all the things that you've grown up with, all the, the law that you've learned, and Paul basically says, ah, oh, that doesn't mean anything. You can imagine that you would have some questions. There'd be some, well, what about this, Paul? What about that, Paul? Paul, how about this situation? And that's what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 3. Look at verse 1 for me. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. As Paul began to explain in chapter 2, just because you're Jewish, just because you're Hebrew, just because you've got the law, just because you've got the covenant of circumcision, just because you have those things, if you don't keep them, it doesn't mean anything. It's useless. He, he goes as far to say, listen, if a Gentile person keeps the law because God's written it on his heart, aren't they then justified by the law? And the answer to that question would be yes. So the Jew would naturally say, well, what's the big deal? Why be Jewish? Who cares? What's the difference? What, what's the purpose of being Jewish? What, Paul, explain to me what, what's the value in all that we've had. Is there no value in that? And Paul says, no, there's much value in that. There's much value in every way. And he said chiefly, which is the number one reason, chiefly, he says, because to them were committed the oracles of God. Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Paul's saying it was a blessing for the Jewish people to have the law of God. They had Mount Sinai, where God got up there and he thundered down, he rumbled to Moses the Ten Commandments. The Jewish law, by the way, in case you're taking notes, what is he referring to when he talks about the law? He's talking certainly about the Ten Commandments, but he's talking about the 613 Jewish laws that we see in the Old Testament. Those are the, that, it's spelled out through Leviticus. It's six, there's 613 of them. You can go online. You can get a list of them. You can read them all if you'd like to. Go right ahead. That's what he says justifies. The, that's, what, that's what the Jewish person was looking to for their salvation. They had to keep that law, keep those sacrifices, keep those feasts, keep all, all of the finer points in the law. The rabbis spent all their time interpreting the law, telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do. But Paul says it's a blessing. You guys have got that. You, you've been given that record. You've been given that word of God to carry out throughout, throughout all history. But Paul would later mention in chapter 9 all of the other blessings, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. But here's what's interesting. The law not only benefited the nation Israel of Israel spiritually, but it also benefited them practically. It also, God took care of them practically through the law. When you look back at the dietary laws, and we look back and go, well, they weren't allowed to eat pork. They weren't allowed to eat certain things. They had certain washing rituals. They had certain things that they couldn't do. That as the Jewish people would keep the law, it would benefit them for their simple health reasons. As a matter of fact, one commentator mentioned, he said, when the bubonic plague swept across Europe, killing one of every three people, 33% of Europeans died when the bubonic plague slept, swept through there. The Jewish population was virtually untouched. Virtually untouched. So much so that they actually blamed the Jewish people for the bubonic plague. They couldn't figure out what it was. Why, weren't, why wasn't it affecting them? Because in keeping their law, in keeping their dietary laws, they were protected from the plague due to the hygiene and the dietary regulations contained within the law. So God says, I'm giving you the law, but it's not just spiritual. It's going to give you something practical. It's going to give you something that you can live by. It's amazing when we see it. So to answer the skeptic that says, 
oh, then why be Jewish? Paul says, you don't understand. There's great, it's fantastic. You, you, you've been, your, your heritage has been given the law of God. Everything that you do points to Jesus Christ. Everything, it's, it's been an amazing thing. And it's also benefited you practically throughout history. Well, the next question comes. Verse three, the next question, the next skeptical question asked by the Jewish person or perhaps the, any skeptic, he would say this. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Well, what if some people don't believe, Paul? What if they don't believe? The Jewish people as a whole had already rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was already a bunch of them that didn't believe. So what happens to those people? Listen, there will always be people that don't believe. They'll always be there. It's interesting when someone doesn't believe. Did you ever run across anybody who doesn't believe the gospel and it kind of shakes your faith as well? Especially if they're smarter than you. If you get online and you go to some of the scientists and you read some of the atheists and you start to listen to what they say, and I don't advise you to do this, but if you do, you can start to think, well, that's a good point. Well, what about this? And what about that? You think, well, they're smarter than I am. They've got four or five doctorate degrees, and they're, they're really educated, so they must be smart, right? Remember, the Lord uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. But we look at it and so go, what if some don't believe? Don't you know that people who are much smarter than you, they've studied the gospel, they've rejected it, and by the fact that they rejected it, just because someone doesn't believe does not change the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't change. Whether someone chooses to believe or not to believe, the truth of God still stands. It's not, it's not movable. It's not based on someone's you know, acceptance or rejection of it. It's still truth. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, I have to say, with Paul, what if some did not believe? It's no new thing, for there have always been some who have rejected the revelation of God. What then? You and I had better go on believing and testing for ourselves and pro proving the faithfulness of God. And living upon Christ our Lord, even though we see another set of doubters, and another, and another, and yet another, the gospel is no failure, as many of us already know. You see, the gospel is not a failure. But here's the principle that comes along with that question. What if somebody doesn't believe? Man's unbelief does not ruin God's plan. Man's unbelief doesn't, your unbelief in the gospel, your failure to accept the gospel doesn't ruin God's plan. It doesn't ruin it all. God's plan will still go forth. Will their, Paul says, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? The fact that someone doesn't believe. Rob, I don't even like what you're talking about. I'm, I'm already going to sleep. I'm going to get some rest in the rest of this service. I don't believe any of that stuff. It doesn't change what God's truth is. You have that choice, but it doesn't change what God says. If man doesn't believe, God's word still remains true. That's what the apostle Paul's saying. It still remains true. You don't need to believe it for it to go, for it to be true. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go on believing the word of God. I'm going to go on holding to the word of God. And just because there's really smart people out there who have lots of degrees and they're really intelligent and they say, well, no, that's not true. Doesn't work for me. God's word remains truth because he says, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, when it comes to the opinions of man and God's word, he says, let God be true. God will always prevail. The word will always be truth. Man will always be, he doesn't even say wrong. What's he say? A liar. Isn't that the opposite of truth? Well, no, I have my opinion. You have yours. No, no. 
Paul just said, no, no, if you don't line up with God's word and you're teaching something else, you're lying. You're a, let, it, let God's word be true and every man a liar. God's word is true. It doesn't matter if all of mankind agrees on something. We live in strange times. If the, if the whole world said, we agree that this is no longer sin, this is right, but God's word says it's wrong, who's true? The word's true. Mankind is wrong. It doesn't matter if we agree collectively and the majority says something. Paul's saying God's word be true. Every man be a liar. The general consensus of popular opinion should mean nothing to the Christian. It should mean nothing to us. You know where we fall short? Most of us don't know what God's word really says. Most of us don't take the time to study. We don't take the time to learn. We don't take the time to apply which is why we study the scripture the way that we do. Because if you sit here long enough, you will study through the entire Bible with me. I'm about halfway through since I started. But if you sit here long enough, you will go through the entire scripture. And I can't tell you how many times people say, oh, that thing you said or that, that scripture really spoke to me. How did you know? I didn't. God did. Because he knew where you were and he knew where I'd be and he brought you here for a purpose so you could hear what you needed to hear that day because he's trying to reach you. Now Paul says this, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. What does that mean? Think about, that's, that's talking about God. So God may be justified in his words. It means God is always right. And, when some, when, and, when, and may be overcome when you are judged. So when someone judges God wrongly, now that's not true, because when someone comes against the scripture, that's what they're saying. They're really making a judgment against God. How do you think that's going to work out for him? It's not going to work out well. It says, may you overcome when you are judged. It means, it, it means God will always come out on top. He's always going to, he will have the last word. He's going to win. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess someday that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul's making this point. And look at verse 5. But, another question, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie, his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Now I know when you read something like that, you go, I have no idea what he's saying there. Because it seems kind of confusing, but let me, let me, let me just kind of make it easy for you he's speaking to the person who would kind of try to trap God or kind of try to trick God you've heard the you know the questions that you know well God can make a rock as big as he wants right well could God ever make a rock so big that he couldn't pick it up well God could do anything so he could make a rock so that he couldn't pick it up so you kind of I've trapped you God because you couldn't make a rock so big that you couldn't pick it up and that's kind of foolish but sometimes we come to the Lord with those kinds of questions well if God hates sin why did he create it he didn't create it. It's man's choice. But we come and we try to trap God. You see, Paul's opponent was saying this. He's anticipating this question. He'd say, listen, somebody would be out there and they'd say, look, Paul, I'm living in sin. And if my unrighteousness will demonstrate the righteousness of God, in other words, my sin in my life is just going to show how righteous God is, then it would make sense for me to keep right on sinning, right? Because the more I sin, the more righteousness I'm making God. That's, that's, the, that's the question, that's the logic that Paul's speaking against here. If you can look at my unrighteousness and see how righteous God is, then I guess my sin is, is doing God a favor. I'm doing God a favor. So, so therefore, I, I don't need to be righteous. I just need to keep right on sinning. If, if my sin or unrighteousness brings, brings God more glory, how could he possibly judge me for that? 
You see, that's what he's saying in that, in that paragraph there. How could, why would God judge me if he, he wants to save us, so I, therefore I'm making myself savable, and, and why would he judge me for that? Listen to what Paul says. Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? God is not unjust because he inflicts wrath upon sin because he does it righteously. In other words, when Paul says, I'm speaking as a man here, he wants to make it clear. He's, he's not saying that I'm taking off my apostleship. I'm not taking off my apostle hat. I'm, I'm not setting aside the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I think he's really saying this. Only a man could come up with such a stupid argument. Only a man could come up with something that ridiculous that my sin is making God, bringing God glory, therefore I should continue in my sin. Only, only, only a man could do such a thing. If my sin demonstrates the righteousness of God, then I should keep sinning so I can keep on demonstrating God's right. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, does it? Does it? Listen, Paul says certainly not, which means absolutely no. It makes no sense. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? God, if that were the case, then all of us would be guiltless before God because we would just keep right on sinning and there'd be no, no accountability for us. How would God judge the world? Nobody would be at fault for the responsible for their decision. We'd all just say, that's who we are. And this was played out in Gnosticism in about the second century. It began to grow really big. They separated things, the spiritual side and the fleshly side. We'd just live however we wanted, and the spiritual side would go to be with the Lord, and it was all false. Listen, even if God brings something good out of your sin, even if he brings something good out of your sin, you're still guilty of your sin. Even if God brings something good out of your sin, you're still guilty. In his sovereignty, God can and he will use our sin to bring about his plan. In his, he will do it, but we are still held accountable for our sins. We're still there. You say, Rabbi, I have Jesus. No, 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 we're not talking about Jesus yet. Paul hasn't got that far yet. He hasn't got the salvation. He's talking about you standing before God on your own without a savior. Without a Savior, that's what he's talking about. And you can kind of see this logic, how you can kind of think how somebody would, somebody would play this out. Wait a minute, if, if I just, you know, the things I do bring glory to God, then I, I should get credit for what I'm doing. As I began to think about this, I thought, of, uh, I thought of Judas. You know Judas? Judas Iscariot? Son of perdition, the one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And I thought, can you imagine what it would be like if he finds himself before the Lord which he did, but this is kind of my own, this is not necessarily scriptural, this is kind of my, my way of putting it in a way that we can kind of understand this argument. Judas, the son of perdition, the one who betrayed Jesus, he shows up before God, and, and this could be his argument. And you tell me what you think of it. Lord, I know that I betrayed you, but look at all the good that came out of it. I know that I betrayed you, but there was good. After all, Lord, it was, if it wasn't for me, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. If I hadn't betrayed him, then he wouldn't have gone to the cross. And Jesus had not gone to the cross, then, well, then you wouldn't have been able to put your wrath upon him and, and all of mankind. So really, Lord, you should be thanking me for doing what I did because now Jesus went to the cross and now your wrath is satisfied and now all of mankind has salvation. And by the way, I even fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament about me. You know, for the 30 pieces of silver, I, fu I fulfilled that prophecy. So Lord, I, I the way I see it, how could you judge me for that? You think, wow, maybe you're going... Well, that, that's not a bad argument. How, how could, how, how, wait a minute, how, how could, what, what could happen there? This is just my guess, and I don't know that Judas would ever have or ever had the opportunity to speak to God. But here's what I would say. 
Judas, I, if I were God, this is what I would say to him. I may have used your wickedness for good, but it's still your wickedness. I may have used your wickedness, your choices for good, but it's still your wickedness. You still chose it. You still put it there. There was no good or pure motive in your heart when you did those things. It was actually false. It was, it was evil. It was, it was an evil motive. You don't get credit for anything because God brought good out of your wickedness. Interesting point. So God will use our sin sometimes and bring good out of it, but it's still our sin. God can take some of the mistakes that you've made, but they're still your mistakes. He can make good out of them. He can use them. I love to watch somebody's life before they come to Christ and all the things they did, and then God, they come to Christ, and God uses those things, those experiences, those mistakes, those sins, to then minister to the body of Christ. It's an amazing thing the way the Lord does that. And so he's able to pull it in there, but it doesn't mean that they're not held accountable for those sins. If they, if they didn't, again, I want to emphasize this. This is before Paul's not talking about salvation through Jesus Christ. He hasn't got there yet. He's talking about man standing before God based on his own works. He hasn't got to Christ yet. Well, how is it possible that God could ever be glorified in man's sins? Well, I think when he judges it righteously, he's glorified, wouldn't he be? That he judges it fairly. That he judges it providing, by the fact that he's going to provide a savior for mankind, he would be glorified in that. Now let's look at verse 8. Paul says, continue on the argument, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. In other words, Paul points out there, hey, my gospel of grace has been misunderstood. Paul says, I'm being accused of doing this. I'm being accused of telling people, you just go on sinning and, and just enjoy your life in the flesh and you just don't worry about it. And Paul says, that's not what I'm teaching at all. That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? We don't want to mistake the grace of God because we understand what grace is. It's for falling, not for jumping. But we, all, we don't want to mistake the grace of God. We have all the grace we need, but it doesn't mean we can live whatever life we want. The Bible certainly speaks of living a righteous life and a holy life and a life unto God. You know, Paul's here and he says, but it's being misunderstood. So what does Paul say to those who would make this sort of ridiculous argument that he's addressing here? He says four words. He says, their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. So for someone to make this argument, Paul says, don't worry about it. You're going to be judged for it. Your condemnation is just. He doesn't even try to point them out another way. Your condemnation is just. To take the offer of free salvation and the grace of God and twist it into a license to sin just shows how low man could go. And Paul would say, your condemnation is just. If that's what you're going to do, don't worry. You're, you're, it's, it's coming your way because you can't stand before the Lord that way. All right, to this point in Romans... God has addressed the heathen, he's addressed the moral man, he's addressed the Jewish man, he's addressed the religious man, he's addressed, addressed the skeptic. And what he wants us to find out, or what he wants us to know, is apart from Christ, everybody will stand before God as a sinner, as a failure. Everybody will stand, and, he, and he's going to drive this point home. Look what he says in verse 9. What then? Are, there, are, they, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now he turns to us. Are we any better than them? Nope. We're just like everybody else. They're all under sin. 
But Paul, what do you mean? What do you mean under sin? That word under means under the control of, under the obligation of. Under, we're under the, do you you think you're under the control of sin? Let me ask you this, are you still sinning? Yeah, right? I I, I assume that we're all sinners out there. I am. Uh, I I assume you are. As a matter of fact, I know you are, whether you admit to it or not, because the Bible tells me you are. So if we're all under the control of sin, you say, well, no, no, I'm not under the control of sin. I could, I, I could quit anytime I wanted to. Go ahead. Stop sinning. Give it a shot. Try it someday. Try it for an hour. Try it for a half a day. Whatever you, go, as, go as long as you can without sinning and ask the Lord to show you every time you sin. Chances are you're not going to make it very far the minute your mind goes to wander somewhere. So he says you're all under the control of sin. You're under it. And then... You can anticipate, no, we're not, Paul, we're Jewish, we're this, we're that, we're, we're, we're not. Paul says, let me show you in the Bible. I like this, because he kind of sums this section up. He goes, let me show you in the Bible where it talks about this. Let me, let me point to the scriptures. And he's talking about the Old Testament, because he's still writing the New Testament at this point. He says, let me show you in the Bible where it talks about, and he says in verse 10, as it is written. Now let me pause there just for a moment. Anytime you get into a debate with somebody, or a, don't let it turn into an argument, but you get into a debate. Use your mind, use your philosophy, but always end with, it is written. It is written. Always go back, because it honestly it doesn't really matter what you think, does it? It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So you could be sitting here this morning going, I'm not really a sinner, I'm a good person. Listen to last week's message. No, 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 you don't understand that, I'm not, I'm not that way. Yeah, listen to the last two messages if you think you're a good person. Read, read Romans chapter 1 and 2 and, and 3 to where we're at, because Paul's gone to this great length to say, no, we are all sinners before God. And look at verse, he says in verse 10, as it is written. So if you haven't bought anything else, Paul says, I want, you to, I want to show you what the word of God says. He's going to quote Psalms, he's going to quote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, even some from Isaiah. Look at what he says, there is... None righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. That means useless. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their, tomb, or their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And he sums it all up here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's he talking about here? All of mankind. All of us. This is the way that Paul says, listen, I'm going to show you in the scriptures what the condition of the human race is. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who fear God before their eyes. Notice he talks about their mouth. He talks about their feet. From head to toe, we're all sinners, is what he's saying. You say, Rob, I already knew that. Why did he go to such great lengths? Because he wants to make sure that we understand that we, are, we cannot be justified before God any other way than Jesus Christ. He, it doesn't work. Who, he wants us to understand that we're completely unable to save yourself have you come to do you really realize that you cannot save yourself there's nothing you can do to get yourself into heaven there is nothing you can do to bring yourself into a relationship with god it doesn't matter how moral you are how good you are paul wants you to come to that place and i'd love the fact that he turns to the bible and he says now let me tell you what the bible says all the logic all the philosophy here it is 
here's your dumb skeptical questions answered, but let me come back to what the scripture says. And he's talking to us. Now he's not saying that you couldn't be any worse than you already are. He's not saying that you couldn't be, you know, that you couldn't make decisions and make yourself more of a sinner than you already are. But what he is saying is that before the holy God, you, you and I all fall short. He's saying that man apart from God will seek after himself. We'll be concerned with ourself. And he says there's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no, there's, there's no true reverence for God. There's no, there, there, I love the word fear of God. It's something that we, that we lack, I think, in Christianity. It's repeated throughout the scriptures. What is the fear of God? The reverence for God. The idea that, that not, not a terroring fear, not a, not a cowering fear like I'm, a, I'm a scared of him, but understanding that he is God. And he is holy and he is just and I can't stand before him. I, I, I am unholy. I am unjust. That's what it means to stand before a reverent God saying, Lord, I'll take your ways. I accept what you say. You know, truly that fear of him. Now in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This is written to us, that every mouth may be stopped. I like that. You know what, you know what that means? Everybody may be shut up. <laughs> every mouth may be stopped. Every, everybody, every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty for God. Therefore, the deeds of the law no, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So to the Jewish person that would say, no, I have the law, Paul would say, so what? The purpose of the law was to show you that you couldn't keep the law, that you would come and break down and go, I need help, I can't keep the law. And Paul will explain his own condition in that in Romans chapter 7. The purpose of the law was to show them and show us that we need a savior. We need a savior. The law can't save you. Our religion can't save you. A membership in a church can't save you. It doesn't work that way. The Israelites were given the law. They thought they were saved because they had the law, because of who they were. And Paul said you would have to keep the law perfectly in order for that to happen. You see, it kind of sums up to this. Nobody will go to heaven without being righteous before God. And there's two ways that you can get righteous before God. Two ways. The first way, you can earn your righteousness before God. Theoretically, you can earn it. Which means you have to have lived a perfect life and never sinned. You say, well, I'm going to start today. No, no, it's too late. You can't start today. You'd have to start from the time that you were born, from the time that you had that truth revealed to you. Theoretically, you could get there by living a perfect life. That's what Jesus did. He, he kept it perfectly. He fulfilled the law, he said. He fulfilled the law. The other way is you have to receive righteousness. You receive righteousness. And I want to just read a little bit into chapter, into verse 21 and 22, so we can kind of see what's coming next week. Verse 21 says this, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. That's what he talked about in, in chapter 1. Remember in verse 17, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So now what he says is, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed. How is it being revealed? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. How is the righteousness of God apart from the law revealed through faith in Jesus Christ? To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being 
justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So as we come to the end of our study this morning, and we come to the long three and a half chapters here in the book of Romans, if you go, Rabbi, you just kind of lost me in all that question stuff and all that stuff, just take this away from you. You cannot stand before God on your own. You're a sinner. That's what the Bible's telling you. That's what Paul wants us to understand. No matter what our background is, no matter where we come from, no matter how good we think we are, compared to the standard of the Lord, we are a sinner. Our line is crooked. We're all a bunch of crooked lines out there. Some might be straighter than others, but we're all a bunch of crooked. You go, well, no, my line's pretty straight, Rob. And here comes the Lord. He lays a straight edge down and draws a straight line. You go, ooh, I'm pretty crooked compared to that. That's the standard. We're all crooked lines going through life. That's us. That's who we are. Some might be straighter than others, but that's okay. We all need a Savior. We all need that. If we don't have it, well, I'm sad to say that if you don't make the choice to follow Jesus Christ, then the scriptures are pretty clear. Everybody will live forever into eternity. It's just a matter of where will you live. Will you be found in the lake of fire or will you be found in, in eternity with the Lord? The Bible is rather clear. We don't like to talk about those things. And you know, even in churches, we don't want to talk about hell today or things like that. Don't, don't say that word. No, I, I have to say that word. I have to say that word because I don't want anybody leaving here saying, you know, well, what do I do? You've, you brought me to the point where I'm a sinner. Now what do I do? Well, there's salvation for your sin. That's the good news. Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's proved that everybody's a sinner. He's going to go on to tell us in the coming chapters. And you're going to love. If you were bored in these couple of chapters, you're going to begin to love as Paul lays out his argument for the gospel and the power that the gospel contains. You see, the gospel contains much more power than just someday so you're going to sit on a cloud and strum a harp with little wings and a halo over your head. That's not, that's not it. That's not the gospel that Paul's preaching. Paul's preaching a gospel that's going to deliver you from sin. Paul's preaching a gospel that's going to change your life. Well, how do I do that? You have to make a profession of Jesus Christ. You have to believe on him. You have to believe that you're a sinner, and Paul just brought you to that place, and then you have to say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I want to accept your righteousness to cover my sins. So as always, we're going to take a few minutes to kind of close and reflect in prayer. If you don't know the Lord, and I'm serious about this, and you might be kind of shy, if you don't know the Lord, I want you to get up out of your seat, and I want you to come up here and talk to me, because I want to pray with you before you leave today. If you realize, you know what, that's me, I'm the sinner, I need, I need to know the Lord, you know, I, I, want, I don't want you to leave here if you've never made that profession of faith. I, I don't want you to just assume I'll do it tomorrow or do it next week because you might not have next week. You might not have tomorrow. You see, with the gospel comes such tremendous power to, to live this life today. It empowers you immediately not just in the future someday. It's not just a fire insurance thing that's going to keep you from burning in hell. It's a thing that you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. When I did that years ago, I had no idea where it would lead me. I thought my job as a police officer was rather interesting and kind of fun. This is much better. It is. It really is. I, I, God, what are you going to do next? What's, coming, what's going to happen next in our fellowship? What's going on? Where are we going? Where are you going to take us from here? And I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. So if you don't know the Lord, you come see me right now. And I don't care if there's more than one. We'll take time to pray for everybody. And we'll accept Christ together and you can make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. If you do know the Lord, I want you to go to the Lord. And I want you just to spend a few minutes with him quietly in prayer. No one's praying out loud here. 
And just, maybe there's something he wants to tell you. Maybe you've got to write a few more notes. Maybe you've got to reflect on the scripture. Maybe you're going to go back and read something. Maybe you just want to give thanks for salvation because he brings you to that place of being a sinner. Maybe you just want to say, Lord, thank you that I'm saved. Thank you that I, that's not where you left us. You see, Paul's letter doesn't stop here. If he did, it would be really bad news. But he doesn't stop here. He's just turning the page to the good news, and we'll pick that up next week. So, Father, we just come before you now. And, uh, Lord, wow, it's hard sometimes to think of ourselves as sinners. We don't like to think that way. We like to think we're better than that. We like to think that, you know, we like to look around and find people. We're not as bad as this person or that person. But, Lord, may we not look to the society that we live in as our standard. May we look to your word. And, Lord, as I look to your word, I find myself falling short every day. I find myself failing every day but I also know your word contains the grace and the mercy that I need I know that I can be righteous not by the way I live my life and the choices I make but because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus Christ because your word and Paul's going to tell us that you took the penalty you took the wrath for my sin and our sin so that we wouldn't have to bear it so that now we can come boldly into the throne room of God speak to you and hear from you you've given us your word and so many other things so, Father, as we come before you quietly now, would you just uh, meet us here? And if you don't know the Lord, just come on up and I want to pray with you. So introduce you.